Welcome to Stuff You Should Know, a production of iHeartRadio. Hey, and welcome to the podcast. I'm Josh Clark, and there's Charles W. Chuck Bryant, and Jerry's here, so that appropriately makes this Stuff You Should Know. That's right. Before we get going, we want to give a little special plug to our good friend, John Hodgman, and our buddy David Reese. Yeah. uh, Because they got a season two of their awesome animated show, Dick Town. Yeah. uh, As in Private Detective Dick, by the way. Yeah. I mean, it's cool enough to get one season of a show, but if you've gotten a second season and they're tossing you on FX these days, you've made it. So their show has finally made it, and it's well-deserved, too, because it's a pretty awesome cartoon. It is. It's very funny. Uh, It is actually live now. It premiered uh, on March 3rd at 10 p.m. on FXX. Mm -hmm. Uh, You can watch it on Hulu. And the the whole jam here is that John and I watched the whole first season. The whole it, they're short episodes. So the whole first season was less than two hours long, mm-hmm. which really like makes a great case. We're just streaming the whole thing and and right. laughing a lot in one night. But it's uh, it's about two detectives, John Hunchman, John Hunchman, mm-hmm. and David Purefoy, David Reese. And uh, Hodgman is a is a private detective. He was a former boy detective, like Encyclopedia Brown type, and and. Dave was his uh, sort of his Bugs Meanie, his nemesis, yeah, in high school, and Man, is now great reference <laughs> is now his buddy and his sort of muscle and his driver and his and they solve cases together. And uh, season two, I think, is even bigger and weirder, and it's sort of Scooby Doo. It's just a lot of fun, a really really fun show. Yeah, the first season they did nothing but solve children's yeah, um, which is very mysteries. Funny. <laughs> And they were humiliated by that, so they, they've kind of expanded now to be grown-ups. They've resolved to be grown-ups, and they're solving grown-up mysteries for grown-ups now, which is really something else. So, yeah, like you said, you can stream the whole first season on Hulu, and you can t- uh, catch the this second season on FXX. I wasn't aware of the extra X. Yeah, two X. I don't take back what I originally <laughs> said. It's still big time, but FXX. That's right, uh, and it is rated PG-13. Uh, so if you're 13 and up, you should enjoy it. It's got a few swear words, some mm-hmm. adult themes here and there, but mm-hmm. it's uh, it's great. It's a lot of fun. Happy for Hodgman and, and Reese. Happy, happy Hodgman. Happy, happy Reese. And I just like saying Dick Town. Sure. It's a great name for a great show. It is. Should we talk about effective altruism? Yeah, I was going to say we're we're talking about that today. And this one kind of, I don't know if you noticed a similarity, but this one really kind of ties into that short stuff that we uh, we released before the end of the year about mm-hmm. charitable giving. Did you notice? I did. Although in that episode, it was like, we were like, yeah, you know, find a charity that speaks to you and maybe something that's local or if you have animals or if you had, you know, a, a family member with cancer. And this basically says, don't do any of that. Right. Uh, the only way you should give is by just kind of coldly calculating what would help a human the most on planet Earth. Yes. So effective altruism is one of those movements. It's a pretty new movement. I think it really started in earnest around 2010. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's one of those movements that like elicits passion one way or another. It's a very mm-hmm. polarizing idea. Yeah. If you just take it at its bare bones, which people love to do, and the reason why people love to take it at its bare bones, at its, extre- at its extremes, is because it is 
at heart a philosophical movement. It's yeah. rooted in utilitarianism. And utilitarianism is even more polarizing, and it has been for centuries, mm-hmm. than effective altruism is. And I think if everybody would just move past the most extreme parts of it and just kind of took effective altruism and it's at its most middle ground, where mm-hmm. most of it seems to have accumulated and settled and where most of the work is being done— I, it would be really difficult to disagree with the ideas behind it. It's when you trot out Peter Singer and some of his most extreme views or mm-hmm. when you say, oh, it's all Silicon Valley billionaires, you know. Um, when you when you just look at it like that, that's when people get all riled up and they're like, I hate effective altruism. If you really just kind of take it in a much more level-headed way, it's actually pretty sensible and pretty great because at the end of the day, you're saving people's lives and you're figuring out how to save the most lives possible. Yeah, I I think anything that has some of its roots in philosophical movements of tech bros, Mm -hmm. it's it's a hard sell for a lot of people. Mm -hmm. Uh, But let's talk about a few things that it is, which is uh, the idea that uh, there's a lot of good that can be done with money. And if you can provide for yourself and your own basic needs, um, you should be probably giving to charity. Mm-hmm. Uh, you can take a cold, hard look at your finances uh, by uh, literal strict calculations, financial calculations. Mm-hmm. If you make, if you are a person without kids making $40,000 a year, you are in the 97.4th percentile on planet Earth as far as your wealth goes. Mm-hmm. And that you might not think if hey I make forty thousand dollars a year and then I have taxes and I really like people with a lot of money should give to charities I really don't have enough to spare. The idea is that no, you have some to spare. You can give a little bit, uh, like ten percent of your money, and mm-hmm. still be in the top ninety six percentile, and you can literally save human lives on planet right. Earth. That's the big thing that they're trying to get across here, that, like, the money that you're giving is saving lives that otherwise would be crippled with disease Mm -hmm. or just not around. Like, they would die if you didn't give this money. And the fact that you are giving this money, those people are now living what are called quality-adjusted life years, where Mm -hmm. they're living an additional healthy year or more because of that intervention that you gave your money for. And that, yes, it's based on the premise that basically everyone living in the United States is rich compared to entire swaths of the rest of the world. Yeah. And that basically anyone living in the United States can afford to give 10% of their income and forego some clothes or some cars or something like that to help other people literally survive. And so... Right off the bat, we've reached levels of discomfort for the average person, especially (laughs) (laughs) the average American, Uh that like that are really tough to deal with. And so that's the first challenge that effective altruists have to do is kind of of tamp down that overwhelming sense of guilt and responsibility and shame at not doing that, that that people immediately kind of that crops up in people when they hear about this. Yeah. So I think maybe let's talk a little bit about the history and some of the main organizations that are tackling this, mm-hmm. and maybe through that, what some of the founders describe as the core commitments. Yeah, uh, like you said, it took uh, hold in about 2010. 
Uh, and there's a group of organizations under what is now an umbrella organization called the Center for Effective Altruism, CEA. And uh, it started off with philosophers Toby Ord and Will McCaskill uh, founding a group called Giving What We Can, uh, self-defined as an international community of people committed to giving more and giving more effectively. Mm -hmm. uh, a couple of years later, McCaskill and a man named Benjamin Todd founded something called 80,000 Hours. The idea is that you might devote 80,000 hours to a career. So when choosing a career, be very thoughtful on the impact that career has for both good and evil. We'll right. get way more into all this. Uh, and then um, there's other, you know, sort of not fringes and weird groups, but just on the outskirts called uh, The Life You Can Save and then Animal Charity Evaluators, mm -hmm. uh, which we'll get into how animals figure in. Um, but let's talk a little bit, I guess, about Will McCaskill and what he sees as the core, uh, what he calls the core commitments of EA. So, yeah, and Will McCaskill, he's a um, he's out of Oxford, and so is Toby Ord. And I first came across this, Chuck, when I was researching the End of the World podcast. And, like, I deeply admire Toby Ord on, like, a personal level. He actually walks the walk he and his whole family does. Like, they donate a significant portion of their family income to charity and, like, forego all sorts of stuff. And, like, he's literally trying to save the world. So, um, in that sense, I'm I'm, like— really kind of open to the ideas that come out of that guy's mouth. Um, and Will well, McCaskill. On. You mentioned yeah. The End of the World with Josh Clark, uh, available wherever you can find your podcast. <laughs> yes. Your wonderful, was, uh, heady, uh, highly produced 10-part series. Thank you very much. That where, was a nice view. <laughs> whereas in you tackle the uh, existing existential risks of the of the universe? Yes. Okay. That's. I yes. just want to make sure I had the right the One and the same. And I, I was not doing that to set you up for a plug. I was doing so. it in like kind of full disclosure that I'm a little – I'm probably a little less than objective at this one. Yeah, but, you know, that's a great show, and it's still out there Thanks, uh, just man. because it is, you know, a few years old now. It's very evergreen, I think, it's, at least in these times. Yeah, the world hasn't ended yet, so yeah. it's still evergreen. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Good point. So, um, but I, I mentioned that in, in part just kind of fully disclose um, that I think Toby Gord is one of the greatest people walking the earth right now. But mm -hmm. also, Will McCaskill, who I don't know, seems to be in lockstep with Toby too. And so he's kind of one of the one of the founders of this movement. And he said that that there's um, four tenets. He wrote a 2018 paper. And he said there's basically four tenets that form the core of uh, effective altruism. One is maximizing the good, okay. which we can all pretty much get on board with. Like sure. you want to make as much good as possible for as many people as possible. Mm -hmm. The second is aligning your aligning your your ideas, your um your uh, contributions with science. Sure. Using like evidence-based, um, uh, well, evidence to, to, to create where you're going to put your donations, to use that to guide you rather than your heart. It's a big one. So it's, it's a tough one for people to swallow. Another one's welfareism, mm -hmm. where by maximizing the good, the, you're you're improving the welfare of others. That's the definition of good in that sense of maximizing the good. And then last one is impartiality. That's a tough That's one. That's as hard for, for people to swallow. That's harder, I think, for people to swallow than science alignment. Um, because what you're saying then, Chuck, is that every single person out there in the world equally deserves um, your charitable contribution. Yeah, and that's a big one because I'm trying to find the number here of how much 
Americans give abroad. Where is that? Okay, here we go. Mm -hmm. um, out of the, um, what is it, $470 billion that Americans donate? Yeah, in 2020, I think. Yeah, $471 billion. $25.9 billion of that went to went outside of America to international affairs. So uh, it's a lot of money, but it's not a lot of money in the total pot. And the, <clears throat> the idea for EA is – is to sort of shatter your way of thinking about, you know, trying to help the your the people in your city or the people mm -hmm. in your state or your country and to look at every human life as having equal value. Yes. And, and not so even it, human life, but every life. Yeah, they include animals too, like you mentioned before, and we'll get into a little more. Um, but the, the, the key is that if every single person living on Earth is equally important then and you're trying to maximize the help you can you can do if from a from a strict EA perspective mm -hmm. you're wasting your money if you are donating that money if you're an american if you're donating it in america because just by virtue of the value of a dollar it can do exponentially more good one dollar sure. can yeah, yeah. in other like developing poverty stricken areas of the world than it can here in the united states mm -hmm. So that right there sets up for critics of that e of EA like to point out that, well, wait a minute, wait a minute. Are you saying that we shouldn't donate locally here at home, that we shouldn't save the animals in the animal shelter, that we shouldn't donate to your local food pantry, that you shouldn't donate to your church? And if you really back an effective altruist into a corner, they would say, look, just speaking of maximizing your impact and mm -hmm. everybody around the world is equally important no, you shouldn't be doing any of those things. And you certainly shouldn't be donating any money to your local museum or symphony or something like that. Yeah, and they say that with their their head down and they're kind of drawing on the floor with their foot. Mm -hmm. And they're saying like, yeah, that's kind of <laughs> what we're saying. <laughs> that's right. Yes. And that's really tough for people to swallow. There's like, it, it's just this huge jagged pill that they're asking people mm -hmm. to swallow. But if you can step back from it, what they're ultimately saying is, look, man, you you want to do the most good right. with your charitable donations. Here's how to do it. Yeah, just do you want to just feel good about it? Aside. Yeah, yes. do you want to feel good about it or really do the good? Exactly. And that's what they're doing. That's the whole basis of effective altruism is they're saying set like your all of your charitable giving is for you. You're doing it for yourself. That's why you give. This takes that out of the equation and says now you're giving to genuinely help somebody else. All right. I think that's a great beginning. Uh, maybe let's take a break now that everyone knows what this is and everyone is is choking on their coffee because <laughs> they just donated to their local neighbor organization. Mm -hmm. uh, and we'll come back and talk about some of the other uh, philosophical founders right after this. Stuff you should So a couple of people we should mention really quickly because they're going to come up. Uh, as far as organizations, we did not mention GiveWell yet. Mm -hmm. uh, they were founded in 2007. They're a big part of the EA movement uh, by Facebook co-founder Dustin Moskovitz. And uh, his wife, is it Kari or Kari Tuna? I'm going with Kari. I think so. It's C-A-R-I. Uh, so they have partnered up um, to create open philanthropy. Um, Philanthropy. Philanthropy. Why yeah, did that yeah, sound weird? 
<laughs> I wanted to say philanthropy. Ugh. It's too early in the episode <laughs> for that. Uh, so they're they're big donors and big believers in the cause. Um, and then another person you mentioned is well, first of all, you mentioned utilitarians uh, in this mm-hmm. philosophical movement. Um, mm-hmm. They were developed by uh, I know we've talked about Jeremy uh, Jeremy Bentham before and John Stuart Mill, but the idea that people should do what causes the most happiness and relieves the most suffering. Mm-hmm. And the other guy you mentioned that's uh, sort of controversial, I guess you could say, is Peter Singer. Mm-hmm. Uh, he is a an author and a philosopher and a and a TED talker who who kind of um, became I don't know about famous because a lot of people don't know any modern philosophers, but in these circles became famous mm-hmm. from a, an idea, a thought experiment in 1972 from his essay, Famine, Affluence, and Morality, which is you're going to work. You just bought some really expensive, great new shoes. You see a, a kid drowning in a shallow pond. Do you wait in there and ruin those new shoes and rescue the kid mm-hmm. and make you late for work? And, you know, 99% of people, if asked, would say, well, of course you do. You're not yeah. going to let that kid drown. So the the flip to that is, well, that's happening every day all over the world, and you're essentially saving your new shoes by letting these kids die. Yeah, you're you're so what's you're your problem, actually, bub? You're buying those new shoes rather than donating that money to save a child's life. It's right. Morally speaking, it's the exact same thing. And in that in that essay, I wrote it last night. It's really good. Yeah. Me if you too. want to feel like a total piece of garbage for not <laughs> doing enough in the world, read no that. Kidding. Um, he he basically goes on to destroy any argument about, well, that's a kid that you see in a pond. You, you're actually physically saving that kid. Yeah. He's like, well, it's so easy to donate to help a child on the other side of the world right now that for all intents and purposes, it's as easy as going into a pond to it's save easier. a kid these days. It is easier. You don't even have to get wet. You just <laughs> call in your yeah. credit card, basically. <laughs> yes. You know? Um, so, so he just destroys like any argument you could possibly have, and he is a, an extremist utilitarian philosopher. Yeah, in that he's basically saying not just that giving money to the point where you are just above the level of poverty the as the people you're giving, like really cutting into your your luxuries to help other people. Uh-huh. Not only is that a good thing if you do that, it's actually not doing that is a morally bad thing. It's morally wrong to not do that. So he will really turn like the the hot plate up under you um, <laughs> and, and just really make you feel uncomfortable. But he's saying like, like, this is my philosophical argument and it's pretty sound if you hear me out. And if you hear him out, it is pretty sound. Um, the problem is, is he's a utilitarian philosopher and a very strict one too. And so... Um, there's a lot of like, you can take that stuff to the nth degree to some really terrible extremes, um, to where it's, it becomes so anti-sentimental that, um, it actually can be nauseating sometimes. Like, strictly speaking under a utilitarian view, this one's often trotted out, it is morally good to murder one person to harvest their organs to save the lives of five other people with the that murdered person's organs. Technically speaking, in a utilitarian lens, 
that's that's maximizing the good in the world. The thing is, is like if that's what you're focusing on and you're equating effective altruism's desire to get the most bang for your donation buck mm-hmm. to murdering somebody to harvest their organs to save five people, you've just completely lost your way. Sure, you can you can win an argument against utilitarianism in that respect, but the fact that it's leveled and trained on on these on on this movement this charitable philanthropy movement is is totally unfair even though yes it is pretty much part and parcel with utilitarianism yeah singer is a guy who uh i think is one of his philosophies is the journey of life and that uh interrupting a life before it has goals or after it's accomplished goals mm-hmm. is okay uh, so he, you know, if you mention his name, there are a lot of people will will point to this idea that he says things like it's okay to kill a disabled baby right after they're born in some cases, especially if it will lead to the birth of another infant with better prospects of a happy and productive life or an older person who has already accomplished those goals. And the idea being that the disabled baby doesn't have goals yet. Uh, you know, that's obviously some controversial stuff. Yeah, just a tad. And he's a hardliner and doubles down on this. But again, it, to to sort of throw that in, that has nothing to do with effective altruism. No, he wrote that paper, Famine, Affluence, and Morality, which basically provides the general contours of the effective altruist movement. Yes. But it's not like he's just the leading heartbeat of the movement or anything like no, that. No, that's not their Bible or anything like that. No, and unfortunately, he's an easy target that yeah. people can like point to because the effective altruist movement has kind of taken some of his ideas they're like, oh, yeah, you like Singer? Well, what about Singer's argument right. about this? It's like that has nothing to do with the fact right. of altruism. He exactly. makes a really good, easy, um, easily obtained straw man that people like to pick on. That's right. Uh, let's talk about numbers a little bit. We mentioned that uh, in the United States, uh, $471 billion was donated in 2020. Um, about 324 of that came from individuals which is amazing. Yeah, those corporate guys are really pulling their weight, huh? Yeah, no kidding. Uh, individuals, and that boils down to about $1,000 per person uh, in the USA, which is not that much money if you think about it. No. And out of that, there are a couple of um, pledges that EA endorses, one called Giving What We Can, which mm-hmm. is promising to give away 10% of your lifetime income. Uh, and then another one called the Founders Pledge, where if you're a startup founder, you promise to give away a percentage of your eventual proceeds. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then there's also Try Giving, which is a temporary pledge to donate. And, you know, it's only about 12 years old. Only about eight to 10,000 people have taken these pledges so far. Right. Um, which is still, I mean, that's a decent amount of people, especially considering that most of the people involved in this movement are um, high-earning um, extremely educated people who are probably like 10% of their income is going to add up to quite a bit over the course of their careers. And that's the thing. They're saying like, I'm going to give this 10% a year yeah. for my career. And the reason why they've really kind of targeted careers, um, that's part of 80,000 hours. 80,000 mm-hmm. hours is this idea that we spend about 80,000 hours working. So if you took that 80,000 hours and figured out how to direct your energy, the most um, effectively towards saving the world, mm-hmm. um, you can really do some good just by the virtue of having to have this career to support yourself. And so there's a couple of ways to do it. One is to 
have a job that you make as much money as you possibly can at, and then you donate as much as you comfortably can, and then maybe even then some, say 10%, or some people donate 25%. There's a NASA engineer named Brian Ottens who was profiled in, in the Washington Post who said he, he specifically got the most stressful, uh, high-earning job he could handle um, in order to give away, I think, a quarter of his, of his income, right? And that's great. That's one way to do it. But another way to do it is to say, okay, actually, I'm, I'm going to figure out something that I really love, but I'm going to adjust it so that it's going to have the most impact possible. Yeah, I think it's interesting. Like, there are two ways to think about it. The first one that you were talking about, they call it earning to give. And, you know, the idea that you, if you are capable of getting like a really high paying job in like the oil industry mm-hmm. with the idea that you're going to give most of that away in the earning to give philosophy side of things, they're saying, yeah, go do that. It doesn't have to be a socially beneficial job. Make the most money you can and give it away. Uh, don't go get the job at the nonprofit because there are tons of people that will go and get that job at the nonprofit. Yeah. Like, that, that someone will fill that position. Um, 80,000 hours doesn't, uh, they say that that's not the best way. Theirs is more the second one you mentioned, which is don't take a job that causes a lot of harm. Right. Being happy is part of being productive. And you don't have to go grind it out at a job you hate just because you make a lot of money so you can give it away. Like, Make yourself happy. Don't take a job that causes harm. Do a job where you have uh, a talent. Um, Policymaking is one field. Media, I would argue that we have a job mm-hmm. where, you know, we didn't know, but it turns out we have a talent for doing this, uh, and we can leverage our voice, uh, and we occasionally do, to point out things uh, that we think make a difference in the world and to mobilize people. Um, right. That's not the goal of our show, but we can dabble in that. Which is which is great. Uh, that's not what we intended going into it, but I think we woke up one day and found that we had a lot of ears, so we could we could throw in episodes. I think that lead to good. Right. Yeah. Agreed. Which means we can shave a little off of that ten percent we're morally obligated <laughs> to, to donate every year, right? Yeah, how about seven percent? Huh. <laughs> so um, a good example of that of like figuring out how to direct your your career path more toward improving the world. Um, on the, uh, I guess the 80,000 hours site, they profiled a woman who wanted to become a doctor. And she did some research and said, um, well, this is cool, but most doctors in Australia treat Australians who are, you know, relatively very well off and very healthy. And so instead, she decided that she wanted to go into a different field of medicine. I think she went into like epidemiology and figured out how to get, how to direct her, her interest in medicine toward um, getting vaccines out to market faster to get Mm -hmm. them through the clinical trial process. And so she's not going to get to be a doctor, but she's going to get to focus on medicine and she's going to get to have the satisfaction that she's improving the world demonstrably through her job. And she might not donate a dime of that. I suspect she's probably going to because she's on the 80,000 hours website. Um, But even if she didn't, she's still figuring out how to use evidence um, to make evidence-based decisions to maximize the 80,000 hours she's going to spend in her career to make the world a better place. Right, because one of the ideas of EA and a lot of, you know, the the Charity Navigator and Charity Watch, like, good websites that we endorsed mm-hmm. uh, that were not poo-pooing at all, but 
um, they tend to focus a lot on, you know, how much goes to overhead, how much goes to the programs, which is which is good. But EA is like, no, what we want to see are data and literal scientific data measurables <clears throat> on how much return you're getting for that dollar. And right. some charities do this and are a little more open about it, but they basically say, you know, every charity should say, here's how much your dollar, uh, here's how far your dollar goes and exactly what it does. Right. And the charities of the West said, come on, really nervously. Right. <laughs> when they're exactly. asked that, when they're told that they should be doing that because they just don't. Part of the reason why is it's very expensive to run um, what if effective altruists like to use as the gold standard random control trials mm-hmm. where basically, um, you know what? What UX testing is, user experience testing for like yeah. a website. So there's A-B testing where you've got some people who are using your website and they're getting one banner ad. Right. And the B testers are getting a totally different banner ad. And you just see which gets the most clicks. It's basically that, but for a charity, for mm-hmm. the, the work that a charity is carrying out. Some group gets malaria nets, another group doesn't. And then you study which group had the best outcome. And then you could say, oh, well, these malaria nets increase these um, these uh, uh, life-adjusted years by, you know, 30%, which means that it comes out to, um, you know, 0. 0.5 uh, life-adjusted years um, per dollar compared to, you know, 0. 0.2 life-adjusted years for the control group. Ergo, we want to put our money into these groups that distribute malaria nets in Africa because they are demonstrably saving more lives than groups that don't. Like, they want data like that, and you yeah. just don't get that with most charities. The good thing is, is they're pushing charities to do that because if you do care about that kind of thing, then then if you can come up with that kind of evidence, you can get these effective altruist dollars. And there's a lot of dollars coming from that group, even though it is relatively small. Yeah, it is interesting because, you know, in that example, if you were to just say on your website, uh, people with, with uh, malaria nets fare better, dot, 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 duh. Right. Like everyone knows that, but they really want to have that, to drill down and have that measurable where they can point to a number and say that, you know, this this is the actual result. We all know malaria nets help, mm-hmm. but maybe if people, I mean, maybe they think it speaks to people more. Um, it certainly speaks to them, but I guess they think it would speak to the masses if if because these things cost money. I mean, that's one of the criticisms right. of these uh, randomized controlled trials that is that they're it's sort of expensive mm-hmm. and like maybe that money should be used to do to actually donate instead of doing we, these trials. But it's a good good one. They must think it speaks to people to have actual data like that. Well, it speaks to them because the way that you figure out how to maximize your money is to have data to look at to decide rather than your heart. So it makes sense. They, these are techies because. Yes. They're all about that data. Very much so. And there's some problems with that, with relying on that. There's some criticisms, I should say, but it's problems too. One is that there's a lot of stuff that you can't quite quantify in terms like that. Like, if you're saying like, no, I want to see how many lives saved your your work is doing per dollar, um, well, then the, you know, the the high museum's going to be like um, zero. We're saving zero lives. But that doesn't mean that they're not enriching or improving lives through through the donations that they're receiving, this art museum. You know what I mean? Um, Livia, who helps us with this article, gives an example. She's saying, like, you couldn't really 
do a randomized control uh, trial for the 1963 March on Washington. Yeah, for sure. That helps solidify the civil rights movement. Right. Um, and yet, it'd be really hard to argue that that didn't have any major like effects on the world. So that's a that's a big that's a big argument. Then the other thing is that sometimes these randomized controlled trials, like you can hold it one year, yeah. and then in one part of the world and go to another part of the world the next year, and it's it what should be the same is just not the same. And so if you're basing all of your charitable giving on these things, they better be um, uh, reproducible, or else what are you doing? Yeah, I mean this. You get why this is such a divisive thing and why it's such a hard sell to people because people give with their hearts generally. Uh, They give to causes they find personal to them. Like I mentioned earlier, a family member with cancer or a family member with MS or just, you know, name anything. Mm -hmm. Generally, people like have a personal connection somehow, which makes them want to give. And that's sort of the heart of philanthropy has always been the heart. Uh, and it's a, it's a tough sell for EA to say is I'm sorry you have to cut that cut that out of there. Um, you know it's a very subjective thing to what constitutes a problem even um, th- when it comes to the animal thing. Like when when people give for animal charities, they're generally giving to you know dogs and cats and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. Um, th- these these great organizations that do great work here in America. But the concentration, if from the EA perspective, are factory farmed animals, and that one percent of charitable spending in the U.S. goes to the suffering of farmed animals, and that's what we should be concentrating on because of the massive, massive scale. Again, to try and do the most good, you would look at like where are the most animals, and sadly, they're on farms. Yeah, I mean, just from sheer numbers. Um, you can make a you can make a case utilitarian speaking that your money would be better off spent improving the lives of cows that were going to be slaughtered for beef that will still eventually be slaughtered for beef but you can improve their welfare during their lifetimes and that technically is maximizing um, the impact of your dollar by reducing suffering just because there's yeah. so many cows awaiting slaughter in the world. Um, compared that's a tough to, sell to people, humans though. that are dying in Africa. Yeah. Heck yeah, that's a tough sell. And I think this is where, like, this is where it makes sense to just kind of like maintain a certain amount of common sense. Where it's like, yeah, man, like if you really want to maximize your money, go look at the EA sites. Go check out eighty thousand hours. Um, uh, like, like get into this and actually do that. But there's no one who's saying like, but if you give one dollar to that to that um, local symphony that you love. You're a sucker. You're a chump. You're an idiot. Nobody's saying that. And so maybe it doesn't have to be all or nothing one way or the other, which seems to be the push and the pull and, and I think, the issue here. Yeah, we should read directly from Will McCaskill. Um, he defends uh, EA and he says this, effective altruism makes no claims about what obligations of benevolence one has. Uh, nor does EA claim that all ways of helping others are morally permissible as long as they help others the most. Indeed, there's a strong community norm against promoting or engaging in activities that cause harm. Mm-hmm. Uh, so they flat out say, like, the whole murder someone to harvest their organs, like, we're not down with that. That's not what we're about. Please stop mentioning Peter Singer. <laughs> right, yeah. And he says it doesn't require that I always sacrifice my own interests for the good of others. And that's actually very contradictory of Peter Singer's um, 
essay. He says, yeah. no, you're morally obligated to do that. And if you don't, it's morally bad. They're saying like, no, let's, let's all just be reasonable here. Like, yeah, we're philosophers, but, you know, we can also like think like normal human beings too. And that's what we're trying to do. We're trying to take this kind of philosophical view um, based in science, based in evidence, and try to direct money to, to get the biggest impact. Um, yeah, like you said, can we stop? Can we stop bringing up Peter Singer, please? <laughs> uh, how about we take another break and yeah. uh, we'll talk a little bit about, jeez, uh, what else? Long-termism and EA's impact right after okay. this. Stuff you should Learning stuff with Joshua and Charles. Stuff you should So, long-termism is a part of the EA movement, and this is the idea of, hey, let's not just think about helping people now. Uh, if we really want to maximize impact to help the most people, which is at the core of our mission statement, mm-hmm. we need to think about the future because there will be a lot more people in the future to save. And uh, and so, long-termism is, is really where you're dollar is going to go the most if you think about like deep into the future even yeah um like if if humanity just kind of hangs around planet earth for another billion or so years which is entirely possible if we can make it through the great filter um (laughs) uh, there will be like quadrillions of human lives left to come yeah and a lot of philosophers who think about this kind of thing kind of make the uh, make the case or can make the case if they want to that their lives are probably going to be vastly more um, enjoyable than ours just from the technology available and not having to work and all sorts of great stuff that's going to come along. And so technically, just by virtue of the fact that there's so many more of them, Mm -hmm. we should technically be sacrificing our own stuff now for the benefit of these generations and generations and generations of humans to come that vastly outnumber the total number of humans who've ever lived. Like 108 billion humans have ever lived. We're talking quadrillions of humans left to come. That very much dovetails yeah. with the um, the kind of discomfort you can elicit from somebody who says that your money's better spent relieving the suffering of cattle awaiting slaughter than it is saving children's lives in Africa. You know what I'm saying? Yeah, and they're not just talking about uh, climate change and, like, obviously that kind of existential risk. They dabble in AI Mm -hmm. and stuff like that, and uh, I know that we don't need to go down that rabbit hole. You should listen to The End of the World with Josh Clark, (laughs) the AI episode in particular. I mean, it's all about that. (laughs) Uh, But it does have to do with that kind of stuff. It's not just like we need to save the planet so it's around in a a billion years. Mm -hmm. Uh, You know, they tackle, like, all kinds of existential risk, basically. Yeah, and they dedicate, like a lot of these guys are dedicating their careers to figuring out how to avoid existential risk because they've decided that that is the greatest threat to the future that would cut out any possibility of those quadrillions of lives. So that's, that's right. what the, that's literally why they have dedicated themselves to thinking about and alleviating these risks because they're trying to save the future of the human race because they've decided that that is the best way to maximize their careers for the most good, which is just astounding if you stop and think about what they're actually doing in in real life. Oh, yeah. Uh, Pretty neat. We mentioned the kind of money that's, even though it's a um, not a huge movement so far, I think we said like somewhere around 8,000 people have made these pledges. Mm-hmm. I think overall, uh, the co-founder of 80,000 Hours, Benjamin Todd, says about $46 billion 
is committed to EA going forward. Mm-hmm. Um, like you said, a lot, you know, it's because of uh, there are a lot of rich people and tech people that are backing this thing. So a mm-hmm. lot of that money comes from people like Duskin Moskovitz and uh, Kari Tuna and Sam Bankman uh, Fried of uh, he's a cryptocurrency guy. Mm-hmm. So a lot of that money comes from them, but they're they're trying to just raise awareness to get more and more regular people on board that, you know, if they have, you know, $2,000 or $3,000 to give a year, they're saying, I think they estimate that three to 4,500 bucks is like the amount of money it takes to save a human life and to yeah. give them additional quality years. Yeah. So if you cough up that much and you direct it toward one of the charities that they've identified as the most effective um, through their sites, through like GiveWell is a place to go look for for charities like that that have been vetted by effective altruists, you're literally saving the life of a child every year. It's like you're saving yeah. a child from drowning in a pond every single year, just and all you're doing is ruining your new shoes. Or, you know, it's more than your new shoes, but yeah. you're, you're ruining your really nice vacation that year. Right, because you, you, know, you sent this one thing, I don't know where it came from, but the, the idea of someone running into a burning building and pulling a child out or a kid out of a pond, mm-hmm. they're, they're written in the newspaper as a hero, but you can, you can do that. You can save a kid a year or more every year for the rest of your life. Um, it's a little less dramatic. Mm-hmm. You're not going to have a newspaper. You're not going to be above the fold. <laughs> sure. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. But uh, that's, I mean, that has, EA is like all about, it's, it's the antithesis of that. Antithesis. What is yeah. it? Antithesis? Yeah. yeah, I like it. You know what I mean? It's, it's no frills version of antithesis. Yes. The thing is, too, is also, I mean, it's still very relative. Like $4,500 is is relatively a very large amount or a so-so size amount or not much amount, depending on how much you, you make. Yeah. And again, nobody in the effective altruist movement is saying that you should personally sacrifice unless you really want to, unless you're driven to. Mm-hmm. But the, you're not morally required to personally sacrifice to cough up that $4,500 when it means you're you're not going to be able to eat for a week or you're not going to be able to have a place to live. Like, nobody's saying that. And nobody's being flippant about the the idea that $4,500 isn't that much. What they're saying is $4,500 can literally save a child's life. And if you stop and look at your life and think that you could come up with that, you could donate it to a certain place that will go save a child's life in real life. That's that's what they're saying. Yeah, this uh, this, this would be a hard sell to Emily. <laughs> what? I'm thinking about our our, our uh, charity conversation we have every year, and I'm trying to imagine myself saying, what if we don't give to the local animal shelter and neighbor in need like we usually do, uh-huh. and instead we do this? Right. <laughs> she would just be like, uh, I see what you're saying, but but no, get get out of my face with that. <laughs> but I mean, you could be like, well, how about we do both, you know? Yeah, exactly. So I think I think that's the thing. That's my take on it. Like, I, I we support coed, and like that's sure. I have no qualms about supporting coed, even after doing all this research and understanding effective altruism even more. No qualms whatsoever. I'm sure that that money could be directed better to help other people in other parts of the world. I still think it's money well spent and it's it's helping people, and I'm I'm very happy with that. I think that's great, and there, well, I don't have any guilt or shame about that at all. And yeah, I don't because- think I should. What you're saying at that point, like with coed, it is an organization dedicated to helping children in a in a, a not very well off country mm-hmm. live better and longer lives. So like mm-hmm. it essentially is effective altruism in a way, except effective altruism is like 
no, 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 no. The data says that this one is, look at the numbers. <laughs> it's point this, this, this better and goes further. Like they really, it's a, it's a numbers in a data game that makes it tough for a lot of people to swallow, I think. Yeah, it's anti-sentimentalism, basically. I'm a sentimental in, but guy. At, at, in the service of saving the most lives possible. I know. It's 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 interesting, and it doesn't surprise me that it has its roots in, in philosophy because it is really a philosophical sort of uh, head-scratcher at the end of the day. Yeah, for sure. It's pretty interesting stuff, isn't it? It really is. I think it's I think it's fascinating. Yeah. So there's, I mean, there's a lot more to read, both criticisms and, um, you know, uh, pro-EA stuff. Mm-hmm. And seriously, you could do worse than than reading um, Peter Singer's uh, essay. What is it called? Famine, Affluence. And Feeling and Bad. <laughs> famine, Affluence, and Morality. Yeah. It's, it's like 16 read. pages. It's a really quick read. Um, it's really good. So read that, too, and just see what you think. See what you think about yourself, too. And maybe take some time and examine, you know, um, if you could give to some of these charities. Uh, Or if you're not giving to charity at all, seriously do spend some time and see where you could make that change. Yeah. Uh, And since I said make that change and Chuck said, yeah, that means, of course, it's time for listener mail. Uh, This is follow-up to albinism. I knew we would have... Someone who has albinism to write mm-hmm. in. I'm glad we did. I knew we had listeners out there. And this is from uh, Brett. Uh, hey, guys. longtime listener. I have albinism, so I thought I'd throw in my perspective. Uh, first off, I know you were struggling to decide how to describe it, uh, albino or albinism. My preference is using the term albinism like you guys did. As to me, it denotes a condition while saying if someone or something is albino, it feels like you're de- uh, delegating them to a different species. Right. Uh, being called albino always used to bug me growing up. And that was usually because they were uh, kids were trying to get a rise out of me. Fortunately, I was a big kid, so it never really escalated to physical bullying. I like <laughs> I like this idea. Yeah, <laughs> uh, like the the kid with albinism who's like huge, and someone says something, they're like, "Excuse me, <laughs> what did you just say?" Yeah, I didn't say anything. <laughs> uh, being a child of the '70s and '80s, like you like you guys, it was pretty rough at times. Uh, on the physical side, my eyes are very light sensitive. Uh, they're blue, uh, where again, while growing up, some of the kids would keep asking me why my eyes were closed that was bright. Uh, and of course, the low vision comes into play as well. I'm considered legally blind, as pretty much every other person with albinism I have met has the same issue. Uh, there were ways to adjust in school and uh, ways they could assist me with large print books, magnifiers, monoculars. Uh, or the teacher simply letting me look at their slides afterward and have more time with them. Nice. Uh, uh, yeah, that's great. Uh, as for how people with albinism are portrayed in TV and movies, I don't think being portrayed as a hitman or even someone with magical powers bug me as much as the fact that I know that it was fake because it would be really hard to be a hitman with the kind of eyesight that we have. <laughs> <laughs> I love that. So practical. Yeah. Uh, and Brett had a lot of other great things to say, but um, that is from Brett. And a uh, long-time listener. Thanks a lot, Brett. That was great. Glad you wrote in. And, uh, yeah, thanks a lot. If you want to be like Brett and get in touch with us and say, hey, you guys did pretty good. Or, hey, you guys could have done a lot better. Or, hey, I'm mad at you guys. Or whatever you want to say, we would love to hear from you. We can take it all, and you can address it all to stuffpodcast at iheartradio.com. 
Stuff You Should Know is a production of iHeartRadio. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows.